Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I will be your host today, along with World Business Academy President Ronaldo Brutico, for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. As a way of background, I'm a Vice President, Wealth Advisor, and Estate Planning Consultant with Morgan Stanley, um, and I'm also a new member of the Board of Directors of the World Business Academy. Additionally, I'm the past chair of the Board of the Ventura County Economic Development Association. Today we're going to be continuing with our magazine-style format, which as always will include your questions and comments. Um, so if you're interested, we already have several questions in queue, and if you'd like to place a question, you can dial into the phone call at area code 347-989-8946 and press the number 1 at any time. At such points in time, we will uh, take questions from the audience, and we'll indicate to you when you are on the air. As we look at today's format, uh, Ronaldo will be covering three major topics today, along with a lightning round. And the first topic that we're going to have it will be, how can we counter the Supreme Court's blow to democracy from its radical decision that corporations can spend unlimited amounts of money in federal election campaigns? Topic two will be the battle over Bernanke's reappointment as Fed chair, and the ramifications of that vote, which, as we know, has already been completed. Uh, topic three will be the Academy's campaign against neuromarketing. And as I say, after the second segment, we will have our lightning round. We will talk and comment upon such major asset classes as commercial real estate, housing, consumer spending, gold, energy, the dollar. And today, we will also be focusing a little bit on the euro. And again, as a reminder for those people who are just calling in, at any time, if you'd like to raise a question or be in the question queue, just press the number one on your phone, and we will see your phone light up here, and uh, we'll take your question at appropriate times. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Ronaldo, and we'll give you his introduction first. Ronaldo? Thanks, Howard. Uh, thank you again for helping us with this show. It's great to have you to, uh, to think these things through with on behalf of all the listeners that don't ask questions and to help us get everybody who has a question in front of the mic so that they can find a way for their lives to work better economically uh, as well as socially, politically, and in a sense in the way that we view the world. Um, the reason I say that today is so important. Today is the 20th anniversary of the release from jail of Nelson Mandela. He'd spent 27 years on Robben Island. So a man who spent 27 years in jail because he was a believer that white and blacks could live together in peace in South Africa, uh, a belief he held, holds to this day, and was what imbued his life with a, a strength of courage that few men have ever known or been able to experience. And as we talk about the economic issues that are facing the United States and the world at this time, and how knowing about these economic issues can improve the personal daily lives of everybody who listens to this call, which is our goal. It's wise to remember what he said the day he was released from Robben Island. He, um, he, he obviously was victorious. And as he came out of uh, that jail cell for the first time in 27 years, he said, quote, I can rest only for a moment, for with freedom come responsibilities, and I dare not linger for my long walk is not yet ended. We pay tribute to Nelson Mandela for two reasons, the character of the man that he is, but more importantly, what he said fits our situation in the United States of America today to the T. You see, 
we thought, we had hoped, that somehow magically the election of a new president, in this case Barack Obama, would release each of us from the responsibility to play our part, to see to it that the economy we have is a reflection of the values we hold. We've done a great deal in this last year since Obama was elected as a nation. We've ended the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. We've avoided a complete global meltdown. I could tick off numerous other things that have happened, which are all very good. Uh, and in fact, if you haven't read it, I'd like each of our listeners to go to an article I wrote um, uh, at um, truthout.org slash WBA. So go to truthout.org and just search my name, Ronaldo Brutico. And you'll see um, an article I wrote uh, just after the State of the Union speech in which I call for bold action from the president. In there I list the accomplishments of this last year, and I go past that to what I think are the challenges that clearly the Obama administration is stumbling over. So I like the Mandela opening because I think it really raises for us the issue of personal responsibility socially, politically, in every aspect of our lives if we want ourselves to do well economically individually, as a group, and on behalf of a planet that's badly broken. So I, I, I start that way because that's the whole premise of the World Business Academy. If each of us seeks to be responsible for more than just ourselves, but for the whole of society, not only will we benefit economically and otherwise, but society as a whole will benefit. And that's the premise of the Academy. We salute Nelson Mandela, and his words of wisdom will figure later when we start talking about the Supreme Court. So with that in mind, Howard, um, I, I'm... Well, let's, let's go to topic one, Ronaldo. And again, it's somewhat of a convoluted statement here, but let's, let's go through it. Um, first is, how can we counter the Supreme Court's blow to democracy from its radical decision that corporations can spend unlimited amounts of money in federal election campaigns? And let me just ask you, as a start, why should anyone care about this decision? Okay, first of all, uh, I, I believe that the, the decision, the U.S. Supreme Court decision, which reversed 130 years of settled law, constitutional law. So for anyone to think that the current court is not a bunch of activist judges really is not understanding the issues. Uh, they're activists, but they're activists in a retrograde way. This decision is probably the worst decision in the history of the United States, with the possible exception of the Dred Scott, Dred Scott decision, which Rush Justice Taney um, executed through, is a, his way to avoid what he thought would be the Civil War that would erupt. Of course, the Civil War erupted even more vigorously because of that decision. The idea that you could hold people captive as slaves in the United States when clearly at least half or more of the population had chosen to, to shuck this incredible moral and, I think, economic depravity. Well, Taney, eight years later, when he died, was died penniless, almost was convicted, by the way, for his crimes. Um, and the, the Civil War became a more brutal affair than probably would have been required had the court been more reasonable. The court failed the American public in that sense to blend the various requirements of constitutional law because clearly black people in the original Constitution were not allowed to have a vote. So he failed to see the emergence of the underwriting thoughts and values of the Constitution and injected them into a political debate in a way that caused irreparable harm. The same thing just happened with the Supreme Court. On a five to four decision, what they have basically said is that the entire political process is now probably going to be prostituted on the, on the altar of commerce, meaning that unlimited corporate giving can swoop in and drown any other voice. So if anybody listening to this call thinks that Exxon won't be the principal architect of energy policy, you better think again. 
it's going to be Humana. And in the state of California, Anthem, where they've just raised their rates 39% just this month, there's no justifiable reason. Even the Obama administration wrote a letter saying, how can you justify a 39% rate increase on top of all the other increases? If you think Anthem and Humana and Blue Cross aren't going to write health care policy in the future, better think again. And you go down each sector of society, those economic forces, which are most entrenched, will be the ones that will drive the agenda because they will have their politicians elected because they can put unlimited money behind it. Now, that's clearly an insane outcome. All right. So what you're saying, Ronaldo, is, if I'm hearing you correctly, that in lieu of our politicians, our representatives, and our representative form of government responding to the voice of the population, of the people, through their votes, that essentially those politicians have the potential to be completely bought and sold by corporate interests. I'd go further than the potential. I'd say the certainty. In other words, you can't tell you can't tell Exxon that it's allowed to put an unlimited amount of money behind energy policy by and not expect that they'll control it. Let me give you an example. You, a lobbyist walks in the day to a congressman or a senator's office and says, look, we can help you. We can get some of our employees to care about you. We can indirectly give you a little bit of money. But if I walk into Exxon and I say, you know what, congressman, we have $136 billion in profits this year. We're willing to put all of that up to make sure we get what we want from the Congress. Which side of that $136 billion are you on? And by the way, nobody can withstand the pressure of $136 billion. Nobody can withstand the pressure of a couple of billion. Look, we have a third-term mayor of New York, who I think is a pretty good mayor, by the way, Bloomberg, strictly because he's a multi-billionaire and bought both elections the last two times around. He paid for it himself. So you know, you, you, you know when you're talking about tens and hundreds of billions of dollars, that the industries that are reaping those extraordinary, I would say egregious profits, are the very industries that will control the political debate on that subject because it matters to them in the pocketbook. That's where we're going. And, 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 and we must now address what are the possible ways to overcome that liability. So uh, and soon to be ex-Senator Chris Dodd is talking about a constitutional amendment, which is how they ended prohibition. Maybe it'll work. I don't know. How does he withstand the power of the politicians and the money that's going to be pushed against him by all the corporate interests? I'm kind of doubtful that he will. Uh, Alan Grayson uh, from Florida, first-term congressman from Florida, who's got a lot of courage, has put forward six separate bills that I think could be effective in curbing the perfidy of this particular decision. Um, I believe that there are things that one could do through the Securities and Exchange Commission to require full disclosure. There's talk of a rule, for example, which I think the president could adopt by executive order, or the SEC could through its rulemaking, whereby the public, the shareholders of any public company, would be required to vote in advance before that public company would be allowed to spend their money on a political statement. So there are a lot of things we might be able to do within the fact, within the confines of the constitutional case that's come down. The problem we have is anything you do now to try and curb this insidious influence of money in politics, which is already out of control, anything you do will be met with even more money and power. And I'm not sure the American people are awake enough to hear the true questions that are being asked. It looks to me like the fear drum is being banged inappropriately. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the economy. But the fear drum is being banged. Clearly, there's a tremendous amount of political spin going on. So that, uh, And again, we, I am not a Democrat. I don't choose to be a Democrat. There's a lot of things they do I don't particularly care for. But clearly, the Republicans are the party of no right now. And as such, they're using their spin machines and the media to attack everything they can possibly stop that the Obama administration will do in the hopes that the economy will crash, in the hopes that health insurance won't occur. 
reform. So we've got a very, very cynical, insidious uh, set of factors at work, and the American public has not been awake enough to see through these issues. I mean, just this week that we would announce a drop from 10 to 9.7 in the unemployment rate. Uh, by the way, a call that only the Business Academy, as far as I know, made that that would happen, that we'd see that drop this month, which we did. That drop has been heralded as an aberration of some sort. Uh, people have refused to look at the fact that not only is the economy bottomed out in the third quarter of last year, unemployment, as the Academy wrote in the Econ Forecast and has repeated all along, would continue to trend up. The employment would get better and better. I'm going to stick with the number we gave a year ago. It's going to be at 8% by November, not 10 and it could be less than 8, but it'll certainly be hovering around 8, not 10. So there's improvement in all sectors, and yet people have the sense that somehow the government's not doing their job. Somehow there's a reason to be upset, to be frustrated, and, and when that gets stoked by the flames of unlimited corporate money, I believe, and I said this recently to a prominent judge here in, uh, in Ventura County, I sincerely believe that the, the, the republic as we know it is in jeopardy, meaning it's possible that our form of government cannot sustain or withstand that much political influence with that much money. This may be the end of the United States of America as we know it, unless we curb this decision. Well, do you think at this point in time it's actually too late that the battle is lost, or are there concrete things that um, our viewers can do, our listeners can do, that uh, citizens out there on the streets can do to uh, affect change and remedy this before it's too late? And I'm reminded that the definition of fascism is corporate control of a government. And are we on the verge of that? And by the way, that is, that is the accurate definition, which we should forget, of fascism. But here's my point. I said a moment ago that you've got the possibility of a constitutional amendment. Chris Dodd, formerly the senator, uh, soon to be the former senator from Connecticut who's retiring, uh, he's now saying he'd like to push that since he hasn't got a political seat to lose. God bless, hopefully he will. That's a tough thing to do. To adopt a constitutional amendment is an extremely difficult thing to achieve. Now, there are other things, however, that can be done, as I said, at the, at the level of the SEC. What the citizens need to do in this country is they need to be reminded of Mandela's words. You know, with freedom comes responsibilities. And I dare not linger. So we haven't got a whole lot of time. This, this, this tsunami of corporate cash is going to hit us in the November midterm elections. We have to immediately, before November, we've probably got two or three months, we've got to develop a series of checks and balances on unlimited corporate giving, whether that be something as simple as requiring every shareholder to vote before money can be used in a political decision. There's another possibility, which is we have, uh, we have reasonably decent, broad conflict of interest statutes on the book. Right now, Howard, if you were to give a contract, let's say you're a congressman, you give a contract to your brother-in-law's paving company because your brother-in-law is giving money to your campaign, that is considered an ethics violation. Why is it any different if you give it to the same paving company? It isn't your brother-in-law that owns it. It's your biggest campaign donor. So a reinterpretation of what constitutes a conflict of interest, which the Congress itself could do. It could say, you know what, it isn't ethical to vote on a bill for health care reform if I've received substantial cash from companies with a vested stake in the outcome. Up until now, Americans have been willing to accept cash in politics as the price of a free society. What this decision does is it demonstrates that too much cash makes a free society impossible. So 
what I, I think, and, and if you want, I mean, and if people like, I can give a series of other uh, bills that one could pass that would be um, able to restrain these worst impulses. But what I would urge is this. Contact your congressperson. Call them on the phone. They love it when you call them, frankly, because they'll take your name down, and they and they actually that means to them way more than if you write them a letter. If you write them a letter, it means 100 times more than if you send them an email. At least send them an email. But get on top of this. And if you look at, start watching the Academy's monthly publication, Currents and Commerce, and every single issue from here on out will give you one tip on what you can do to stop this from happening. I mean, this is so vital. Well, let's let's start today. Do you have one particular suggestion that you think would be a good starting off point for people? Yeah, I, I actually like the one about uh, I would like having uh, some organization lead a petition drive for the Congress to define its ethics rules to require every congressman to recruit, recuse themselves if they received money from a t- particular firm or industry that in the aggregate was more than 5% of their last campaign budget. So if you're getting more than 5% of your money from the healthcare industry, don't vote on healthcare issues. If you're getting more than 5% of your money from the energy industry, don't vote on energy issues. And what will happen is the only people voting will be the people who aren't getting the money, and that's exactly the way it should be, isn't it? Uh, I also think that the SEC absolutely should adopt the rule I mentioned twice now. We should have a regulation. If it's my money, if, if, I've, if I'm a shareowner of, 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 um, of uh, Exxon, I should be allowed to vote whether I want my corporate resources used to influence the political conversation or not. Well, now, I'm not saying a, that that would give me a question related to that, though, that given that the largest blocks of shares of most major corporations are not in the hands of individual citizens oftentimes, but in the hands of other businesses, other corporations, other pension funds, um, even, isn't even that just sort of affirming that these people are going to vote to spend that money uh, to lobby for their own interests? Is, is that well, it may really be, a, see, a way out? Well, no, see, remember, who owns Exxon? The, 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 the fiction is that it's owned by individual people. The reality is it's actually owned by institutions. That's who controls the stock. Mm-hmm. And I think what's, what you can do is you can appeal to institutions to recognize how something that might look good for the short-term financial gain of a corporation could in fact actually compromise its long-term best interests. So I, I think it really depends. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it, it really depends on which industry, which company. In the case of Exxon, I have no illusions that the majority of Exxon shareholders would vote to control energy policy if they're allowed to. So I'm not sure that that particular uh, remedy would work for Exxon and energy. I think it would work great for things like um, a company like GE and energy. I think the shareholders of GE right now today would vote for more alternative and green sector energy and less nuclear at GE because that's where they're making their money. Uh, I think that you would find that uh, there are many companies, um, who, uh, particularly if they're commonly held stock companies, who would argue that it's in the best inter- institutions would argue it's in the best interest of the healthcare companies, the insurance companies, to have modest reform so there isn't a more cataclysmic approach to the problem. Isn't that a bit, and this may even lead us into our second topic a little bit, isn't that a bit like uh, Greenspan, or maybe it was Milton Friedman's claim, that greed self-corrects in their economic view of the world, and what we saw in 2008 was that greed did not self-correct? Well, and I think that's no question we saw that. In fact, greed is loose upon the land again because the, the so-called moral hazard 
is is working in reverse. I mean, the largest banks, and take Goldman Sachs for example, uh, ended up getting at least twenty billion dollars from the federal government directly or indirectly in cash. Uh, was declared too big to fail. Was allowed to convert to a bank charter overnight. Um, was one hundred percent protected all their investments, even the ones that went bad, including the ones through AIG. And Goldman Sachs ends up with all these giant bonuses, and everything is hunky-dory. Well, the guys at Goldman Sachs aren't stupid. They're looking back going, hey, that worked. We had this enormous glut of money we were given when things were good, and when things got bad, we still got a big glut of money, and the government picked up the tab. So why won't they take risk? Why won't they be greedy? By the way, I, there's another act I want to mention you, and I, and I want to urge people, if you want to read the five separate pieces of legislation that Alan Grayson introduced, Alan Grayson being the congressman from Florida, uh, you can go to uh, Huffington Post, and they've posted an article on it. But one of his that I think is a really cute one is called um, Business Should Mind Its Own Business, uh, uh, Business Should Mind Its Own Business Act, which would impose a 500% excise tax on corporate contributions to political committees and on corporate expenditures on political advocacy campaigns. I think that's a great concept because what it would do is you could take that money and fund public elections, and ultimately that's where we have to go in this country. We have got to go to a system of public elections. If we don't publicly finance our elections, the overwhelming likelihood is that our democracy will be bought by the, by the best that money can buy. And there's enough money in this country to buy virtually any congressman or senator or their outcome. Uh, he's got some other cute titles, by the way. The Corporate Propaganda Sunshine Act would require public companies to report what they spend to influence public opinion on any matter other than the promotion of their own goods and services. Perfectly lawful. And the Political Kickbacks Act would restrict political contributions by government contractors. Since so many companies are contractors of the government, directly or indirectly, that alone would influence a huge segment. By the way, that would sweep up an Exxon on that one. So uh, there's a lot of different things that you can do. What I would say to the public, and that's why I started with Mandela, it's up to us. It, it, we, have, we, we dare not linger. Uh, we must walk because it has not ended. And we must be aware that with freedom come responsibilities, and the responsibility in this case is to preserve our democracy so it doesn't get buried in a tsunami of cash. Okay. Thank you, Arnold, on that point. Uh, let me remind our listeners that if you'd like to place a call, or uh, ask a question rather, you should call into our number, 347-9, I'm sorry, I can't even read my own notes here, 989-8946. And if you're already on the call or you want to ask a question, press the number 1, and we will see your hand light up on the screen here and cue you in. Uh, so let's move on to our second question. And we know the battle of Bernanke's reappointment is actually over and done, but what are the ramifications of this vote, and what are the strategic implement, uh, implications of this in terms of policy? Yeah. Well, I think that um, there's, there's as many good reasons to reappoint him as there were bad ones. I mean, the fact of the matter is it was on his watch. The entire system melted down. And he clearly had plenty of authority, and he had the right to be able to regulate the finance community and didn't. So it's sort of like you're, you're kind of rewarding the captain of the Titanic with a new ship. Now, to his credit, unlike the captain of the Titanic who went below decks and proceeded to get drunk and went down with the ship, Bernanke uh, realized what he had done and decided he'd let it go way too far and I think was very proactive after the cra crash occurred. So after he hit the iceberg, so to use a metaphor, he actually went, seized control of the ship, was able to keep it from sinking, and now has been chastened by the experience. However, 
Having said that, meaning he'll be more proactive, he'll be, I think he'll be more careful with, with regulating the abuses in the system, he still has not come out in favor of consumer protection and finance, which I think is essential. He still has not said, you know what, we're going to have to stop the basic premise of unlimited gambling. We're going to have to regulate derivatives. Or at the very least, if you want to play in the derivative market, you can't, you can't do it with public money. Uh, gambling is today at a larger, there's, at the height of the, the crash, there was $650 trillion of derivatives. There's somewhere over $720 trillion today. So nobody learned anything. And we're deeper in debt than we've ever been. And $720 trillion is so big a number, the entire global economy pales in significance. So Bernanke hasn't learned the lessons he should have. I think he did learn some lessons. Now, one of the things, though, for, that will directly impact people on this phone call is you can expect the Academy's prediction of last year now to come true relative to interest rates. Whereas many people are saying, oh, he won't raise interest rates until 2011. If you notice, a couple days after he was, he was reelected, the first thing Bernanke did was he sent a warning shot across the bow saying, we know there has to be some balance to the stimulus. We won't do it yet. Economy's not, you know, permanently on a sound footing. But we need to be looking at the excess liquidity in the system, which is code word for interest rates. So we're, I'm still seeing interest rate rises in the second half of the year, not necessarily right in June, July, but second half of the year right after that. And that's going to cause a lot of pressure on the economy which will cause it to slow down. But at that point, I'm expecting it to be growing at about 3.5%, 4%. That'll provide some partial breaking. It'll scare out people a little bit. But since unemployment is going to continue to go down each month from here on out, uh, and that talking point will disappear, I think people will be able to digest a slight recalibration. I think Bernanke sensitive enough. He's not going to go crazy. But if you were ever going to buy a home, and just to let everybody know, because this will come up later in the, in the real estate section, in the last three months has been a historically phenomenal um, three months for home sales. Uh, to the extent people aren't aware of that, it's it high double-digit increases over last year, uh, one of the strongest bursts of existing housing stock resold in history. Um, a lot of the problems with foreclosures are very much there. It's still very much an overhang on the market. There's still a lot of problems. Clearly, we're not going to be building a lot of new housing stock for a while. But Bernanke is, clear, is clever enough to know that the all-time lows in mortgage prices, which are happening right now, combined with all-time lows in prices, has been stimulative to the housing market. When you combine that with the fact that the Fed has bought over $1.2 trillion of mortgages just to sop them up, you can expect that he's going to stop that activeness activity within the next four months, which means that the cost of money for a home mortgage will start to creep up one point at least or more. And the prices of housing is going to start to creep up as it's already begun. So the time to buy a house is right now. You get the best mortgage prices you've ever possible on record, and you get the best prices for the real estate itself. So if you're thinking about buying a house or a condo or an apartment or a townhouse, rather, this would be a perfect time. Bernanke's re-election will cause the system to be tighter three, four, five, six months from today. Well, let's go back to that for a question. This is an election year, um, and there's a great deal of fear and panic on the Democratic side of the aisle um, that if unemployment does not come down, they will lose a significant number of seats, that that's going to be a big issue. And we hear from our sources that uh, interest rates will not go up unless unemployment comes down. Do you truly think um, that this, these interest rates rise would happen to any significance before the election? Well, I think there will be, yeah, there'll be some tightening, um, at least a quarter point 
before November. And remember, I, I'm on record that uh, I predicted that the that the unemployment would fall from 10 to 9.7. That's a huge number that that changed. And we are on record saying that that it will continue to fall between here and November. So, although I know that that represents probably less than two or three percent of all economists. I'm delighted that no less an authority than Alan Greenspan, who engineered the entire train wreck we went through, he disagrees and thinks it's going to hover at 10%. This is last Sunday he was saying this. Uh, unemployment will hover around 10% between now and the end of 2010. Uh, I clearly think he's wrong. Uh, we're already down to 9.7. I'm expecting he'll get down to the lowest 8 by November. So as the unemployment rate continues to come down, that will give people more comfort. Plus, remember, corporate profits are booming right now. Um, the economy is it grew at a 5.7% rate in the last quarter of last year. Uh, I don't think it'll do that this quarter. I think I'm expecting you'll see like a three and a half percent, two to three and a half percent, somewhere in that range. And in fact, our annual forecast for the economy in the U.S. probably will be revised upward in the next econ forecast because I'm seeing that we could do above two and a half percent growth this year. We might do as much as three and a half. Uh, so we're 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 looking at that two and a half to three and a half percent call we made last time we did it. Uh, that may be conservative. That it may be a little higher than that growth. So when you combine growing economy, good corporate profits, a reducing monthly reducing unemployment level, I think you're going to find that people would be able to take a quarter percent chink in the interest rate, and they're going to have to because the inflation specter is very very real and going to get more real every day. Okay. Bernard, it's time to move on to our lightning round. And again, we'd like to get your comments on such quick matters as commercial real estate, housing, consumer spending, gold, energy, the dollar. And where I'd like to start with today actually is the euro. What's your feeling about the euro and what's going on there? Especially well, in light of uh, today's news and yesterday's news that Germany may have to help bail out Greece. Yeah, well, Germany and France. Yeah, yeah, and, and they will. I mean, I don't think they have any choice. Um, first of all, I think that uh, Greece is a basket case. We've been talking about that for a while. Um, there's a new acronym I want everybody on this call to know. Uh, you're going to see this now everywhere for the next, I don't know how many months, maybe years. And the acronym is PIGS, and they spell it P-I-I-G-S. And so PIGS stands for uh, Portugal, Italy, uh, Greece, which we'll talk about in a second, Spain. Don't Ireland. Don't forget Ireland. In there. Uh, well, yeah, right, second I, sorry, Ireland and, and Italy and Spain. So Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Spain, Greece. Those are the, that's the pigs. Let's come back to Greece. And the reason they call them the pigs, which I think is a terrible acronym, by the way, is because they're the, they're the six sisters of the European Union. They're the ones having the most trouble. Of that group, however, two of them are completely unique. Greece is a complete basket case for a whole bunch of reasons, which we'll talk about in a second. Italy is a completely different story for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, it's basically a fascist country at this point, or quasi-fascist. It's run by a multi-billionaire named Berlusconi. Uh, there's no pretense that it's that democratic anymore. It's just there's no other choice, so they go with him because he's the, he's the, he's the guy of the moment. I mean, I, I was mentioning to someone just this morning, it's amazing. He's trying to make it illegal for Google. He's had a statute passed for Google to report a story that doesn't meet the same standards, which are limited in Italy, for libel and slander so that people can't write bad things about him on the Internet. I mean, the guy, the guy knows no boundaries. This is a guy who's basically you know, who's going through his divorce so he can send more roses on Valentine's Day to his 16-year-old girlfriend. But anyway, Berlusconi, who's the multi-billionaire, he owns all the communications virtually in Italy, radio, television, newspapers. 
and he, he runs it as a benevolent thing, and it's, it's, it's a mess economically. But because he is who he is, and because he's very clear about what he has to do to make it operate at the margin, Italy's not going to end up in the same basket case with Berlusconi alive that Greece is. Greece has nobody like Berlusconi, who kind of acts like a, a rudder to the ship. Greece is just being buffeted by a series of factors. I won't list them all, but clearly the strength of the euro, the ability of Greece to borrow, despite the fact its economy wasn't growing. Um, Greece has a country where I think one quarter of the entire population works for the government. I think something like 85% of the people are known to cheat on their taxes and don't pay them adequately. So you've got inadequate revenues coming in. You've got this huge social state going on where people are being paid basically to work for the government and just twiddle their thumbs. And at the end of the day, Greece doesn't have a basis for a sound economy. So for France and Germany to agree to bail them out, after all the broken promises that Greece has already made, is a reflection of one thing and one thing only. And this is the key of it. And you've never heard this before. You're hearing it here for the first time. Watch over the next three to five years, this story is going to play out. Greece is the first tip of the iceberg of the awareness that the European Union has that it had a political flaw. It needed a constitution that would allow it to have more control over the individual member states under certain circumstances if they were going to have monetary union. Greece is that case where you have monetary union, so Greece and France, so France and Germany can't let them go broke, but they don't have any control over the politics, which means they can keep spending like drunken sailors indefinitely. And if you notice what the European Union very quietly did, and it only took, a play, it took effect just a month and a half ago, is they changed their constitution, finally. And so the first basically head of the European Union, who won't rotate every six months, but who has a term, the first president, has been installed. From that simple act, where they now have gotten a new constitution, which gives them more political authority with their member states, I believe the next thing they will be able to address now, because they knew they had the problem all along, is can a single country, Greece in this example, be in some way altered as to its voting status within the Union, if in fact it flunks out of the monetary Union. So Greece is going to be facing a choice soon, I predict. won't be in the next six months, but within the next year or two. If they don't change their political system, my guess is the European Union will change the criteria upon which you're allowed to use euros as your currency. I wouldn't put it past the European Union within less than two years to tell Greece to start printing drachmas again and stop using euros. And by the way, that might be a very good thing for the European Union to do. It'll be, they now have the political clout to pull it off. I haven't seen that suggested anywhere, but I'm, I'm thinking that might be what the outcome is in this case. The short term is Greece is going to get bailed up by France and Germany. They have no choice at this point. They're too deeply wedded together, and that's going to relieve the, the tensions that people were feeling. At the same time, Spain and Portugal are actually recuperating. Spain's doing quite nicely. Um, I figure within another year, Spain will be back on its feet. Portugal usually six months behind Spain. It's geographically located that way, and it seems to flow that way because of the economies of the two countries. So I don't see Portugal and Spain in the same category as Italy, because there's no Berlusconi. I don't see them in the same category as Greece. Ireland, I think, is already starting to make a comeback. And again, within a couple of years, I think Ireland will be back on its feet, if not sooner. Well, so Let's get back to our, our basic theme here, though, in terms of in, uh, points for our listeners in terms of how they may want to think about investing and the dollar versus the euro, uh, how would it impact someone's thinking on that topic? Okay, well, uh, the dollar, um, I think, will will probably 
stay strong against the euro in the interim, meaning the next couple of three months as the European Union wends its way through the interim solution and starts to talk about the permanent solution. And you really can't make a prediction at this point in time. So if I were holding dollars against euros, I'd say hold. I would not buy the dollar against the euro, however, because the inherent weakness of the dollar will resurface once this crisis passes, only it'll be even a little bit worse because there'll be that many more months of interest due, that many more months of deficits. And Europe is actually doing a better job. Some people feel that the economy in Europe isn't roaring back as strong as the U.S., but that's not quite accurate. It didn't go – Europe has a different social system, and so the economy of Europe is, is actually – chunking along pretty nicely, and it's doing it by absorbing the social costs that it, it, it took on freely to keep a safety net in place for the bulk of its workers. So it doesn't have the unemployment crisis, uh, and the foreclosure crisis is far, far less severe uh, there than here. One exception is potentially a very po- big problem in England, but I think the Bank of England is getting its arm around it. So the, the, the situation really with the, the euro is it will stay relative to the dollar for the short term, over time, the euro will rise against the dollar, I believe, because the dollar is fundamentally weaker. And, and, and I really urge people, look at countries that you don't tend to look at, like Poland, which had the highest growth rate in Europe last year. And, and, and look at how they adjusted during that last crisis. Look at countries like Slovenia, Slovakia. Um, uh, you know, they're all adjusted extremely well. Even countries like the Czech Republic, which haven't done a good job adjusting, but that's because they have a political problem. And their president is an extremely difficult individual and not that bright, not that capable. Uh, intellectually bright, but not practical or wise. And so they're stumbling along, and he'll be gone in a couple of years, and the Czech Republic will be fine when he's gone. So there's, there's, they're, they're assuming they get good leadership after that. So I think these, these countries in Europe, you have to start looking at Europe with a much more uh, careful eye to understand what's really going on in Europe. It isn't, it's sort of like trying to understand what's going on in Iowa by reading the paper in New York. It just isn't going to happen. You really have to delve into it. So Euro, I think, will main parity for where it is now. Over the short term, over the long term, it will actually rise against the dollar. Japanese yen, you didn't ask how our Japanese yen, I think, is, is, is in a weak position. I think that the dollar will stay strong against the yen and maybe even rise. Dollar yeah, against I mean, other currencies like the Brazilian real, I think the real is going to continue. It's, it's been going up the last two weeks. I think it will continue to go up. Okay, let me go on and, again, remind our viewers, if you'd like to place a question, hit one on your uh, keyboard, on your, on your phone pad, rather, and uh, we'll be glad to take your questions on the air. Uh, but let's move on um, to the commercial real estate section and the, the question that keeps popping up about the potential for a double-dip recession here. Um, are those two linked? Are those two going to happen? Well, first of all, um, they are linked. I mean, the fact is we are, we're coming into a real problem with commercial real estate. It's just starting to be felt, and it's going to get much worse. So this is sort of like... Um, in the early part of the rainstorm, it's going to cause the mudslides. Uh, we know mudslides will come if it keeps raining, and sure enough, it's going to keep raining. So commercial real estate, for the most part, is in for a prolonged correction, which will continue certainly for the next couple of quarters and probably beyond that, candidly. Um, will that cause a double dip? No. Uh, I, we've, we've said in the Academy for the last two week on forecast over the last six, seven months we've been talking about this, we don't see a double dip. We see a slow L-shaped recovery. When we made that prediction, I was nervous because we were in such a small minority. Um, and over the last two months, there's been a lot of talk about a double dip because of the, the uh, unemployment numbers staying as high as it did. And uh, if you recall, Howard, over more than a year ago, we said the unemployment rate would rise to 10% level off and then start to come down. And, and I, I, I'm pretty sure we're the only substantial economic forecasting organization that, that called that one right. And I still see that L-shaped recovery 
as the outcome of a gradual improvement in the jobs, unemployment rate, and job creation. You heard the White House today release a statistic that at least 95,000 new jobs per month will be created for the rest of this year. I think that's probably accurate. Uh, I don't think that's puffery. And you see a commercial real estate market, which is going to continue to have a lot of problems. You see an existing housing market, which has had its worst behind it, still has huge problems to digest, but clearly it's not out of control like it was. So all in all, I don't see a double dip, and I do see commercial real estate as a problem. Okay. Any other quick uh, points you want to make on consumer spending, gold, energy? Oh, quick. Yeah, consumer spending, real easy. I think uh, a lot of people are saying, oh, gee, consumers haven't come back to the market. They're not spending like they used to. I think that's the best news of all. Uh, we were spending too much for way too long. Uh, our savings rate, again, this month looks like it went up. So we're, 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 we're learning the lesson of overspending and over-excess consumption. You can't drink that much and not get drunk. And when you get drunk that bad, you have a heck of a hangover. Well, we've gone through the hangover, and we've learned our lesson, hopefully. And hopefully we won't forget it too soon. So with a, with a savings rate, finally, that looks acceptable, meaning 2 to 4%, uh, I think the the country is doing exactly what they should, and the government, for its part, is taking up that slack, which I think it should. So we're going to have a better balanced economy. It won't be 76% consumer spending. It might not even be 72%, but frankly, at 70, that's plenty. So I'm very happy about that. Gold, real quickly, I'm so happy. I think it was October, November, this question came up, and I said, gee, gold at 22.50 an ounce. I, I'm, I'm not going to buy any more gold at that price. I think it's got as much downside risk as upside. If you got it, hold it, but if you don't have it, don't buy it yet. And as you know, the price of gold has fallen 10% since we said that. Uh, I think the price of gold is pretty stable where it is right now at this point in time, given where we are in terms of global anxiety. Um, I think that it's got a little more downside potential, but a couple things could have gone wrong. Greece could have gone belly up. It's not going to, but clearly that would have helped with the gold price. Um, I think gold is where it's going to be. It's in the range it's going to be for a while. It's not a good investment right now. So if you haven't got it, don't buy it. If you still got it, I don't think you have to run to sell it. But don't be surprised if it depreciates in value another 5 or 10%, and then six to nine months from now it goes up again. Any, what other specific ones? Well, I think, I think we pretty much covered everything on good. our uh, lightning round. Energy prices. We did do energy. Ah, yes, energy prices. Okay. Uh, good news there. Um, the oil companies have done everything they can to get the price of oil up, and it hasn't worked, which is great. And with the new technology for natural gas extraction, I don't think the oil companies will succeed unless we don't stop the perfidy of this Supreme Court case. If the Supreme Court case stands as written and nobody tries to offset it, then be prepared to have Exxon control the energy future of the United States, and you're going to see oil at $150 a barrel. You don't think that the energy companies are going to try to rise, raise prices early in the summer for so-called summer driving season and drop it again before the elections? They'll try, but I think the, the problem they're going to have this year, and they've already stumbled across it, look, the, the current account deficit just went up last month at the highest in 14 months, and, and, the, and the sole component that caused that really was the importation of oil. So the oil companies have been slugging as much oil. They were holding oil off the market. Now they're putting as much oil in, the, in as, the, as, the comp, as the country can, can suck. I mean, we're using all the oil they're sending us, and they can't drive the prices higher because natural gas is so cheap. I mean, it's it's about five fifty, I think, as opposed to seventy two dollars a barrel. So when you when you compare the price of natural gas uh, per million cubic feet versus a barrel of oil, the the difference between the price of getting something done with natural gas and the price of doing it with oil is the differential has gotten so great, it just keeps paying to substitute. And you're going to see large companies like General Electric 
who are going to keep pushing the idea of peaking plants as a way to eliminate coal and oil because at these prices, natural gas through what's called a peaking plant, which just means a general electric jet engine tied to the ground that makes electricity when you put natural gas in the front end, um, that you're going to see companies like GE pushing for more and more peaking plants. Uh, you're also going to see things that happen that are, um, you know, I was reading about this little chicken farmer in West Virginia who found a way to carbonize chicken manure so that it can be used either as a fertilizer or he can put it back in the ground, and it creates enough heat by the way he does it that it, it, it completely heats his entire hatchery. So lots of little people solutions are going to emerge, uh, as well as the big solution, which is the price of natural gas, which I think will keep oil companies from getting away with murder unless they're allowed to elect anybody they want to public office, in which case all bets are off. Okay. Now, it appears we do have one question, and I'm going to cue in Great. this uh, listener. Uh, and the listener is at a uh, uh, last four digits of the phone number is 1927. So let me cue that person in right now. Okay. Actually, wondering how you feel the Supreme Court decision is going to affect start, the energy policies. Go back the country and repeat your question forward. because you were cut off. You have, uh, go back and repeat your question, please, because you were cut off in the very beginning. Okay. How do you feel the Supreme Court decision is going to affect the energy policies of the country in the next four to eight years? Well, as I've been saying in the call, I think it's going to cause the price of energy to more than double uh, within the next 24 months. <laughs> I mean, it gets worse from there. I think it'll be unrestrained greed. I think the pigs will be at the trough. Exxon will be writing energy policy. So uh, I, I couldn't be more scared of this whole I – mean, I believe that case, that constitutional law case, is the biggest threat to the United States since the Dred Scott decision, which launched the Civil War. So it's that level of magnitude in my mind. Okay, we have another question. This is from last four digits of your number, are 9208. I'm going to put you on the air in one second. Wait till I tell you you're on before you ask your question. Okay, you're on the air now. Hello, Renato. This is Sheldon Hughes in Marin County. Hi, Sheldon. Renato, just wanted to have you talk a little bit more about public financing of elections. Uh, I know there's been a lot written about this. Bill Bradley had a big proposal in his last book about this. Do you see any momentum gathering in this in this direction? Because it sure sounds like uh, that may be the, the ideal solution in the long term. Well, there, there's a... Um... Uh, there's an interesting article that came out on truthout.org just the other day about this. Uh, it was written by that woman, Granny, who, uh, I forget, Granny David, what's her last name? I forget now. Anyway, she's the, the woman who, when she was 90 years old, walked across America oh, yeah. on behalf of, uh, of, of election reform. And, and what she wrote in the article, which was quite good, is she said, you know, there's like 13, 14 states now that have some restrictions. On um, on campaign financing and and some public financing of elections, and what she was suggesting was we need an outside the box solution to this whole constitutional case. And what we need to do is say, okay, that pushes us over the edge. We are going to have to demand public financing of elections. And I think that's right. I, I think that the um, you know Bradley's actually Bradley's proposal in this book was actually fairly sophisticated because Bradley's a very smart guy. I don't know which prescription is the right one for this patient in terms of uh, the best way to bring campaign finance reform in. But we public financing of elections, to me, is the number one most likely candidate. Yeah. See, with, with public financing of elections, we could, we could require our television stations to dedicate a certain amount of time to each of any candidate who, say, receives more than 5% of the vote or something. Um, we could <clears throat> require that these public forums be done in a, in a neutral way. 
and eliminate all private financing whatsoever so that people would begin to debate the issues because of the issues. And they wouldn't spend from the day they get to, and this is really true, a congressman goes to Washington, the second thing, their day one they get sworn in, day two they start working on re-election. And the way they work on re-election is they go and they man the phones. There's a room, which many people might not know, for example, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, there's a similar room at the Republican Campaign Congressional Committee. And if you stand there in their offices in Washington, you watch a string of congressmen walking in and out all day. They go in this little room, they walk in, they come out a half an hour later, and they go do whatever. And it's like, it's like a parade. And if you, you ask one of the staff people, what are those people doing exactly? And they go, oh, well, that's the phone room. Okay, what's the phone room for? Well, see, they can't make phone calls to solicit campaign contributions from their offices, so we maintain the phones here, so each one can have as many times as they want on the phone, and we connect them with their donors. So in other words, what we said you shouldn't do from your own office on Capitol Hill, you're allowed to cross the street and do it at your collective office, which is the Democratic Campaign Committee headquarters or the Republican in that case. So it's a really interesting phenomenon that we have uh, allowed our elections to go to the highest bidder rather than to the best ideas. Yep. And I think we have to have public financing. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, again, I, I don't know that we have much time because the amount of cash that's going to hit this November is going to definitely swamp the results. It's going to, it's going to affect the outcome. Speaking of time, Ronaldo, we have about 10 minutes left on the call, and I do want to get to our last topic, and this is one on... Thank you, Sheldon. Calling again. Neuromarketing, and it's a topic which I knew nothing about until I read your recent article, Spellcaster, the Hunt for the Buy Button in Your Brain, that appeared in Truthout recently. So what is this all about? Tell us. This is, this is fascinating. So most people know, maybe they don't, but most people are aware, there's a thing called subliminal advertising, which is actually illegal. In other words, if I flash an image on television in front of your eyeball, Howard, and I do it faster than one thirty-second of a second, your eyeball saw it, your brain will register it, but you didn't see it, you won't physically see the picture. The image gets lodged in your brain without your brain having time to tell your eyeball, I got it. You follow me? Because mm -hmm. your brain operates much faster than your eyeball can see. So the, the, literally at one thirty-second of a second, your eyeball can perceive it and you know you saw something. If I flash it faster than that, you don't know that you saw it, but it's now lodged in your brain and it can cause you to believe things that you didn't even know were planted there. Okay? That is illegal, which it should be in America. It took a long time for us to realize, and we made it illegal. And the reason we made it illegal is we said, you know what? That's not fair. That's not advertising. That's brainwashing, which it is. So we said, if you're going to do that subliminal advertising thing, you can't do it to American consumers because that erodes their free choice. Now, we have a similar law which says if you make an audio track on a radio station or a television station, which I can't hear audibly, meaning I can't hear it in my normal hearing pattern, but it's actually being recorded by my brain because it's on a different frequency, that too is called subliminal, meaning below your ability to perceive. But it, that subliminal advertising message is illegal presently and should be. Same reason. It compromises your free will. If you're going to buy something or not, it should be because you decided you want it. Neuromarketing is the next frontier in this battle to control the buy button in your brain. What neuromarketing does is it goes beyond subliminal. Neuromarketing, and, and it's a science that's based upon hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, actually thousands of people, agreeing to do brain scans 
so that we can trace, so that you, you can literally see what happens to a human brain and where a synapse will fire from one place to the other through stimulation that the patient isn't necessarily aware even occurred. And typically this happens when you have two or more stimuli. So I might say the word apple pie, that might not get you to buy the apple pie. But if I'm also playing a song like um, My Eyes Have Seen the Glory, and I play apple pie, if in 90% of the cases those two things happening simultaneously cause your, your neuron synapses to flash, I know you'll buy what I just sold you because I, just, I, I connected two dots you don't even know are connected. And I get your limbic brain. Now, here's a quick test for everybody. I want everybody on this call to ask themselves, when's the last time they remembered consciously taking a breath? The answer is you don't. It happens through your limbic system. It's way down deep. It's automatic. So neuromarketing is aiming at your limbic brain, your old reptilian brain. That's where it's going. And it's trying to get you to do things, to buy a product or a service that you didn't even like in the first place, but you don't know why you bought it because you just did. And by the way, what's really scary we know for a fact that neuromarketing is also being used in political campaigns. So not only are you being sold products and services you didn't really want, you're being sold candidates you weren't even going to vote for. How is this done, though, Ronaldo? I mean, what? I mean, is it through uh, illegal subliminal tactics, or I mean, what physical process is going on that somebody is hitting my brain? Literally, what they're, what they're doing is they're taking test subjects, thousands of test subjects, and they're tracing those test subjects' neuron synapses by doing brainwave scans, um, CAT scans, some MRIs. And what they're doing is they're analyzing how a human brain with one and a half or more million years of DNA evolution interacts internally at the level of a single neuron synapse flashing a single electron. And what they're analyzing is what's common to all of us in our gene bank that may stem from ancestors we had a million years ago in Africa. And what they're doing is identifying those places in your limbic system, way down deep, below your conscious thinking patterns, which they can trigger. So you buy stuff you didn't even know you wanted. Uh, and if how, people are interested in this, they should... Let, let me ask you, how is that trigger affected? That's, that's the question. Well, and then it, how do uh, we protect uh, ourselves uh, from that trigger? You can't protect. That's my whole point. You can't. You might not... You, you, you won't even know what it is that triggered it. That's the whole point of why it's so dangerous. You see, it'd be one thing if you had the free choice to stop it from being triggered. If I said to you, hey, Howard, every time I'm going to do something that's going to affect your limbic brain that your conscious brain doesn't know, I'll flash a red dot in front of your eyes, then you would know. I guess but short of that, you'll never know. I'm walking down the street. I'm in Santa Barbara today in this beautiful day, and you're telling me I'm being attacked by neuromarketers. How are they doing that to me? How are they television and radio commercials. Ah, I see. Okay, so it's the same standard medium that we're used to all the time, but yet something is being loaded into those commercials? Yeah, what they're doing is That's they're taking things that they are loading from test subjects that they know, which might seem totally unrelated to you. You, might, you think they're completely harmless or innocuous, and you don't realize there's a buy button down there at the base of your limbic brain, same place where you're breathing automatically and you don't think about it. Down that deep are buttons that you can push if you know where the buttons are. So if people are having trouble understanding that, here's the easy way to figure it out real quick. Go look at the article we wrote at truthout.org. So go truthout.org slash WBA for World Business Academy. Truthout.org slash WBA. And when you get there, you'll see a series of articles, and one of them is about the buy button in your brain. Read the article. It only takes a few minutes. Click on the video we did. We have a seven-minute video that explains all of this with pictures. And best of all, we interviewed two of the leading neuromarketing researchers in the world who are unabashed about it, they're not even embarrassed, they'll tell you 
we can sell you stuff you didn't even know you wanted. And they talk about it openly. That should be illegal. No question. And so we're asking people, after you see the video, please sign the petition. We want companies to voluntarily, and one has already stepped forward to do so, voluntarily never use it, period. You shouldn't use something that robs me as a consumer of my free choice, or frankly, you're not somebody I want to do business with. Number two, any politician, every politician, should automatically say that A, will never, ever, ever use neuromarketing in a campaign. They should sign that. They should sign that. Now, we're going to deliver those petitions to both the Congress, and we're going to ask for hearings on the ethics of neuromarketing, which we think are flawed, and we're going to deliver it to corporations like Procter & Gamble who use it. And by the way, we know the names of the companies that use this. No politicians ever admitted using it, although we know they are, because the people who supply it have told us they're doing it for politicians. But the companies that use it, you don't even know what ads they're using it in. And we're saying those are companies, if they don't stop using neuromarketing to trick us, to buy stuff we don't want, you should stay away from all their products until they sign a statement saying they will not do it. Okay, Ronaldo, we're coming down to three minutes left on today's call. And uh, I'd like to ask you any final comments or comments uh, yeah, on to our viewers? I do. Okay, you've heard me say uh, I'm concerned, very deeply, deeply concerned about the future of the republic based on this constitutional decision. And I am. And you've also heard me say that I think the Republicans hit the fear button all the time, and that's how they stayed in power, and I think that's wrong. So I do not want people to take fear away from this conversation. I'm an optimist. I believe that everything I've identified we can fix and then some. I believe that everybody is capable of making a better life for themselves, their grandchildren, and that the planet can be a safer and healthier place tomorrow because we choose to make it so. And that's really the role of the Business Academy, to assist in that. So that everybody gets to do better for themselves and collectively do better as a group. And what I'd like to end with is I'd like to end, like I started, with a quote from Nelson Mandela. Now, this particular quote came from his inaugural speech in 1994. It was actually written originally by Marianne Williamson, a friend of mine. But he quoted it because he wanted people to know where he was coming from as the first black man president of the Union of South Africa. And what he wanted to deal with was the question of fear. Because there's lots to be afraid of, as there was the day he was inaugurated. People don't remember. But the day he was inaugurated, and I think this, this comes out in the movie Invictus, which is playing right now. The day he was inaugurated, there was fear that the entire society would blow up into a racial war, which did not happen. So here's what he cautioned his countrymen, and here's what I would share at the conclusion of this call. Quote, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Now, I just remember that don't feel we can't pull off all the things we have to, including campaign finance reform. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and famous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It's in all of us. And when we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Well, that's an excellent way to end our call today. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today, and we will be back next month. Um, and hopefully you'll enjoy another call from the World Business Academy. Thank you again, Ronaldo, and thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you, Howard. Thank you to the listeners. We say goodbye.